Welcome back to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Blair Cook. And I'm Jed Nicholson. Today we're joined by Imran Ahmad. Imran is a partner in the Toronto office of Miller Thompson and leads the firm's national cybersecurity law practice. He also specializes in technology and privacy law. Imran is the author of Canada's first legal incident preparation and response handbook entitled A Handbook to Cyber Law in Canada. Today we're going to talk to Imran to get an update on the state of cybersecurity issues in Canada. Let's get started. I'm here with Inran Ahmad, who is a partner with Miller Thompson in their cybersecurity law practice. Welcome. Hi. Today we're talking about cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is something that's top of mind for many of us. It's been growing in importance. It's something we're seeing uh, almost every day. Perhaps you could just start by talking about what is the current state of cybersecurity in Canada today? Yeah, you know what? Let me let me just take a step back. Uh, many years ago when uh, we were running these annual surveys at our law firm, we would canvas general counsels, uh, compliance officers, uh, risk managers, and ask them for the upcoming year, what were the legal issues that they were expecting to pop up on the radar? Uh, you would rarely, if ever, see cybersecurity or privacy law as a concern for, for in-house teams. So when did it first pop up on so, the radar? Yeah, a couple of years ago, you probably recall, you had Target, Sony, and Home Depot, major cyber attack breaches that occurred in quick succession to one another. And a lot of senior executives actually lost their jobs as a result of it. And ever since then, well, those same surveys that we ran on an annual basis have now revealed that it, you know cyber, privacy, data management, our top three concerns for any C-suite executive uh, team that's uh, that's managing an organization. It's a big business now, isn't it? Can you put some statistics around cybersecurity and just to make it relevant to uh, to our listeners? So there, there, there are a couple ways you can slice and dice the numbers, if you wish. Uh, if you look at ransomware, which is basically a type of a virus that locks down your computer and in exchange for funds will give you a decryption key. Uh, that has seen an astronomical growth over the past few years. In particular, last year, when they had a, a certain variant called non-petia, which basically paralyzed organizations throughout Europe and parts of the United States. That has seen the highest growth uh, in terms of, uh, of statistics. The other one, just to give you an idea, you, know, you, you often hear about these breaches where credit card information has been stolen. Now, credit card information typically has a very short shelf life. Um, you know, it's very easy to get detected, and once it's detected, yeah. uh, you can be issued a new card. They typically give you credit monitoring and so on. That typically sells about two or three dollars a pop on the darknet, which is the underground marketplace where these things are sold. Um, if you were to sell somebody's profile, so for example, somebody who got their hands onto your Equifax profile, that could sell at about twenty to thirty dollars a pop. Wow! So there's there's significant value in in the type of data that gets compromised yeah, so as well. personal data is so much more valuable than, say, a, like say a credit card. Yeah, exactly. A personal data, especially one which could help um, hackers get a virtual profile of you online. If they can figure out a way to get your date of birth, your social security number, um, and, and a variety of other bits of information, they can very easily create a profile around you and use that to, to do bad things. What about corporate data? That must be in the spectrum somewhere. So that's interesting. It's one of the very few areas where you don't have specific legislation. You have, you've got the criminal code, which can uh, assist in some cases, but typically you don't have specific legislation around it like you do around privacy and personal data of individuals. So when it comes to trade secrets, when it comes to intellectual property, um, you know, customer list, confidential planning, that kind of stuff, those are highly valuable 
they are transacted on the dark net on a regular basis and very difficult to prosecute. Is the dark net, when you say the dark net, that's like, it's like the internet, but it's the internet that people don't see? It's the illegal version of, of the internet, sort of the black market where bad things happen. So uh, just to give you an idea, if you wanted to look at the CPA's website, you would just type in, in Google, CPA, find their uh, URL and be able to, to log in. For the dark net, there's no such thing. It's a special type of code that you have to get into and get access to rooms that pop up and disappear over time. So it's very hard to track them on a regular basis as well. Okay, and that's where the bad guys are doing all their all their business. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. So how does Canada compare to, say, the rest of the world? Are we um, more prone to it? Or are we less prone to it? Or is it just, this is a global phenomena? Yeah, well, the, the, the phenomena is certainly global. That I'll, I'll, I'll concede. Um, but I think Canada is probably a bit more targeted than we actually let on. The reason is quite simple. We're a G7 country. We invest heavily in intellectual property and the development, research, and development of our universities or, or biopharma, aerospace, what have you, leading industries in which we're leaders. Um, so if you're a hacker and you want to monetize the theft of data, personal or in particular corporate data, uh, then Canada's a very, very attractive market. And so we are targeted on a regular basis. Like I said, corporations don't typically want to let people know that they were subject of a cyber attack, uh, especially when their corporate data was stolen. Um, in some cases, if it's personal information, they have to disclose it, and that's fine. But for the trade secret part of things, um, they get underreported. So as a result, we don't hear much about it, but it is happening on a real-time basis. So what is the provincial, maybe federal laws around uh, from the, the legal standpoint and a regular standpoint? What are the responsibilities of the organizations to prevent or, or detect or what, when it comes to cybersecurity? So it's, it's a bit of a, of a mosaic like our country is, right? Um, you've got sort of this federal privacy legislation that regulates the public sector. You've got the same federal privacy legislation that regulates the private sector. But you've got three provinces, Quebec, Alberta, BC, which have their own legislation, which are deemed to be what we call, quote unquote, substantially similar. So they have precedence over the federal law. And then you've got health-specific privacy laws in pretty much every province across the country. Um, so you have to navigate through all of that to figure out where your responsibilities lie. But broadly speaking, the most important piece of legislation for private organizations is the federal legislation called PIPIDA. Uh, that legislation is uh, one which is going to be amended in a significant way starting November 1st of this year, so roughly less than a month from today. And um, what's, what's key issues uh, that they're looking at at implementing with PIPIDA, there are three of them. Number one, you want to have mandatory breach notification. So if you have an incident where your information is compromised, particular where personal information is compromised, in that case you need to notify the regulator, but you also need to notify the individuals in real time. I can imagine that's a rather embarrassing situation to have to report that you've been breached, adding injury to insult, if you will. Certainly embarrassing, but there's a good logic around that as well. You know, the logic is essentially you're going to take as an organization every step necessary to make sure that the impact of the individual whose information was compromised isn't impacted in a negative way. So by giving them notice, you're hoping they're going to get credit monitoring, they're going to reset their passwords, they're going to be a bit more vigilant looking at their accounts and so on. So it is a necessary step. Otherwise, a lot of these incidents may not even get reported to individuals who, quite frankly, it's their identity which is at, on the line. Yeah, so obviously to the individuals, but did, was there a responsibility to report to you know, some sort of an agency as yep. well? Yeah, so under the federal legislation, um, 
starting November 1st, and we had this beforehand as well, the federal regulator, which is the Office of Privacy Commissioner, needs to be notified. There's a formal reporting process which has been put in place. So that's, that's step or change number one starting yep. November 1st. The second one, which is also quite significant and much more of a compliance-driven process, is one of recording every single uh, security breach that's occurred within the organization for a period of 24 months. That's not an insignificant undertaking. So you have to have a register that you keep. If an employee goes to a trade show and loses their laptop or loses their USB key, which may have had personally identifiable information of an individual, a customer, employee, and so on, then that needs to be reported back and registered into this log. And the log can be audited by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner at any given time. Um, the challenge on that is not so much keeping the log, the challenge is how do you detect on the front end and then make sure that it gets reported appropriately into that log at the end of the day. So that's, that's a big challenge for a lot of organizations. I would sell, I've never even heard of something like that. That's a bit different. That's sort of a Canadian twist on, on uh, data privacy in particular. Yeah. Um, and then the third change, which is really the key one, if you don't meet the mandatory breach notification, so notifying individuals requirement, and if you don't meet the registry requirement, meaning you don't keep it up to date or you don't even have one, uh, at that point, you could be subject to significant fines, which are up to $100,000 per offense. So those are really the three key changes that people have been scrambling to comply with before uh, November 1st. So there was a lot of talk earlier this year around what was going on in the EU with their uh, general data protection regulations, the GDPR. Is this Canada's reaction to that uh, that legislation, or and how does it differ than to what the European approach has been to? Right. So they're you know taking a big picture approach to to data protection, personal information. I think generally speaking, folks will agree that Canada had been lagging compared to what international norms were. So just to give you an example, in the United States, you've got 50 states that have mandatory breach notification, and which have had that for many many years. So in the United States, if you're a reporter or if you're a class action plaintiff lawyer, uh, the first thing you're going to do on a daily basis is get up, go to the Attorney General of California's website, type in data breach, and you will know every single breach that has occurred. So it's, a, it's something that's been there for a long time. With these changes that are going to kick in on November 1st, we're only starting to start aligning ourselves with the U.S. Uh, model that you have in place. GDPR was also a significant change because that kicked in back in May of this year. And GDPR is by and large probably the most uh, prescriptive and uh, onerous requirement on an organization in terms of how they handle personal information belonging to uh, their customers or other stakeholders. Um, it has significant fines. And one of the key things about GDPR is it does have extraterritorial scope. So that's just to give your, your listeners a bit of an idea what that means. Um, typically when a country adopts a law, it has to be for its, its jurisdiction. So if you're a Canadian, you're, the federal government will adopt a law for your jurisdiction, which only typically applies to Canada. It won't apply to Peru, for example. However, with GDPR, you can now have a situation where a Canadian business that has no brick-and-mortar location in Europe will be subject to GDPR compliance requirements only because they are collecting and processing information belonging to EU domiciled individuals. So that's, that's a bit of a unique break, and it hasn't been tested by the courts just yet, but it's a new global trend. California has adopted a similar legislation, which is going to kick in in 2020. You've got Brazil, which has adopted a similar legislation back over the summer. So it seems to be a global trend in which they're, they're headed right now. So where does that leave us vis-a-vis -vis GDPR? I think what's going to happen is Canada is going to start adopting more and more GDPR-type requirements. So um, just to give you an idea, uh, Canada has what we call an adequacy standard. 
So when you're a Canadian organization doing business in Europe or business with Europeans, you can transfer and collect information across the border without any issue. That's not the case in the U.S. So if you're a U.S. company, you need to self-certify. There's a whole process. It's part of the U.S. Privacy Shield requirement that they sign with the Europeans. So from a Canadian perspective, the reason we can do that is because the Europeans many years ago took a look at our privacy laws and said, by and large, Canadians are offering same types of protections that our European legislation is from a privacy standpoint. So we're willing to give Canada an adequacy standard. With GDPR coming in, that may no longer be the case, which is partially why, in my view, these changes have kicked in or will be kicking in on November 1st, and we're likely seeing more changes coming from that perspective over the next few so months. So I, I suspect you're getting a lot of calls from clients, you know, being a month before November the 1st to un better understand this new world that we're coming into. A lot of clients are asking for advice in terms of how do they, they get compliant, uh, what are their requirements specifically, and, and how should they should organize themselves. You know, I can think in the new economy where we have a lot of e-commerce businesses, people doing business over the internet and the like, where it's, it really is a global economy. You know, How do you navigate your way through with the complexity of all these different standards, the European standards, the American standards, the Canadian standards? Uh, again, how, do, how, how does the average small business do that? It can be a challenge, um, but you have to go back to, to fundamentals and to basics. It could be as simple as what do we call having a data inventory map, uh, knowing what data you have, when you collected it, how you collected it, where you're keeping it, and for what purpose. And really the key around that is to figure out you know, what do you have in your possession and what your responsibilities are. So if you know you've got information about Europeans, you can make an informed decision whether GDPR applies to you or not. If you're collecting information about somebody from Wisconsin, for example, because you have an e-commerce business, fine, no problem, but you'll know what the requirements for Wisconsin are. But if you have no visibility in terms of what your database looks like, you don't know what kind of information you collect, um, you may be in a difficult situation. I'll give you another example. I may be dating myself with this one, but back in the day, we would receive these uh, telephone books on our porches, and it would have what I call tombstone information, name, address, telephone number. Right. Now, if you have that about your customers, it's not the end of the world if it ever got breached because it's readily available online or through other means. But if you're collecting perhaps social insurance numbers or if you're collecting date of birth or a combination of those plus other information, well, that's a very significant harm that could occur to that individual because that could lead to significant identity theft. Interesting. So let's just get into, you know, we've been talking about cybersecurity for the last couple of years, as you, as you suggested. It's becoming big business out there. We used to talk about it's not a matter of if, but rather when. And I think we're in, a, in an age where it's, it's, it's no longer if, it's just, just it's when. It's happening all the time with, with companies that are out there. And so maybe I ask the question or frame the question from the perspective as to what are the schemes? What are, what's going on this year? Uh, how are people exposed? Uh, and uh, what are the schemes that we're seeing uh, mm -hmm. that uh, hackers are perpetrating these days? I'd say there's one which has really sort of caught my attention it's changed, it's showing that some of these hackers are a bit more sophisticated, a bit more brazen in their approaches. It's called social engineering combined with ransomware. So what that means is you can, with all our social media platforms now, maybe Facebook or LinkedIn or others, you can pretty easily figure out who's doing what, what the responsibilities are, you know, uh, how they're engaging with their organization. So think of an accounting department. You can easily figure out who's responsible for wire transfers, you know, educated guests, but you can look up LinkedIn, person, job description, responsibilities. You'll have a pretty good idea what he mm. or she is supposed to be doing. So the hacker will take that intel and absorb it. 
and figure out that John Doe or Jane Doe are, are responsible for wire transfers. He or she will then somehow be able to craft an email either by spoofing the email address of the organization or making one which is very, very close to it and contacting this person or pretending to be this person and authorizing significant wire transfers. Um, so that's one thing that we're seeing. The other one we're seeing is, is still in the ransomware piece is people using identities that they've stolen, credentials that they have stolen by pretending to be someone, being able to then install what we call malware. So they would have this, normally you would just get this email and if you click on it, bad things happen to your computer. What they're now doing is they're figuring out, oh, Imran, for example, has been shopping on Amazon. Yeah. And we can see that because he's posting stuff related to his most recent purchases from this company. So what they will do is craft a very nice, very legit looking email coming from Amazon saying, Imran, you need to update your credentials because your password expired according to our protocol or policy that we have in place. Now, if Imran is not vigilant, he will click on it. And if he clicks on it, he may be downloading a virus or a malware, which may lock up the computer, or even worse, what we call these new worm type of ransomwares, spread throughout the network and lock up the entire network of the organization. Yeah, and that's obviously crippling to an organization when, oh, yeah. that, when that happens. And yeah. so, I mean, the, you're right. These 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 emails are so persuasive. And so I'm not even sure what best practices could we offer to listeners around uh, how do you do this? You don't open like I, I can imagine, say, an accounts payable department who's constantly getting you know invoices from suppliers all the time, which may have links or attachments or whatever. How do you detect which ones you should click on and which ones you don't? Is yeah, there... yeah, that's a good question. So there's there's two things I would recommend. One is more technical, and the other one is sort of good old analog. So in terms of the technical one, there are websites, and they can they can reach out to their IT departments free websites where you basically put in the URL. You can hover around a link that's in the email that's been sent to you and figure out very quickly by taking that URL, putting it into the website, whether it's legit or not. Right. If you want to be even more cautious, just flip it over to your IT department. Hopefully, they'll be able to scan and let you know whether it's legit or not. So that's the that's the technical way of doing it. But if you have any doubt, if you're not supposed to be receiving personal emails on, on your work email, then you should have a trigger that goes off and says, I won't click on it because it may be something bad. The other piece is the analog version I gave you the example of. Um, this is basically making sure when some some of vendor information is being changed, hey, we're changing from a local Canadian domestic bank to some foreign bank located in Hong Kong. Something should go uh, off. Yeah, your spotty suspension should be tingling. Yeah, <laughs> and you, you want to pick up the phone and start calling, not calling the number that was in the email because a lot of these hackers are able to actually respond by phone. They're not, they're not shy at all. Uh, but you want to pick up the file number that you have or the telephone number you have on file and reach out to these individuals saying, hey, I just got this email from your organization saying that you want me to change your accounting information. Can you please validate and can you send me a fax or some, can you validate by any other means? Um, and then you'll probably know if it's coming from a legit source or not. Yeah, I'm seeing much more even uh, these phishing expeditions coming through text now as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost, it's, and it's kind of a sad state where email and text are being perpetrated to such a degree every single day we're getting bombarded by these these attempts, these attacks, that these these tools, these business productivity tools are compromised. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I, there's no answer to that, but uh, it, it, is, it is a shame. Yeah, so. well, it's going to keep on increasing. Um, there's... Um, there's this thing called IPv6. So basically that is a new standard which was established for cell phones and tablets and other devices. 
think of your smart Fitbit, for example, or, or smartphone and smart stove and whatever smart you want to put afterwards. Um, those devices now have their own IP addresses. And it's very easy to take over those devices and use those devices to cause all kinds of issues. Really? So the Internet of Things, where everything in our household is now wired, it's each one of those devices has an IP address? They have an IP address, and they typically have very low, sophisticated security protocols. So think of an insulin pump in a hospital, which is, which is critical in terms of delivery of health. The admin code, which is the highest privilege code you would typically have for security access, it's something like a one two three or a zero 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 zero. Right. So it's not super sophisticated. Anyone can figure it out after a couple of attempts or tries. So and a lot of this stuff is available online if you actually look for it, not on the dark net, on the regular internet. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's it's likely to increase over the next few years given where we're at in uh, in technology. So somebody hacks my thermostat in my house. What exactly are they getting from that? You know, it depends on what they're hacking into. You're absolutely correct. Like, if they hack into your phone, your cell phone, they can mm. listen to your conversation. If they hack into your laptop, they can see yeah, what you're doing. There's a visible, you know, there's a camera in there. There may be a microphone and other pieces of information you don't want to share. They can capture compromising information or steal information and then use that against you to extract funds or, or whatever you, you can imagine. Admittedly, like a stove. Okay, may have limited application to it. Maybe you can't get dinner ready on time, um, or or your fridge. But you know, there there are issues that may come around. Yeah, that, those, those. I'm sure they'll think well. of some way to use that data. Yeah, maybe heat your house up so much that <laughs> your your electricity bill goes up. Um, let's talk about it. So we, we've we've had a data breach uh, or a, a hack happen at an organization. What happens next? So we have a ransomware. You know, they're they're threatening to shut us down or take our data or lock our data. Any one of those. You know, you find your clients are giving you a call saying, hang on a second here, what do I do? Yeah. So there are two types of clients, um, those that have prepared for the incident, those that haven't. I want to take you back to actually something you just said right now, which is not a question of if but when. But now they're changing that and saying it's not a question of if or when, but it's a question of how you respond to a breach. Mm. And there's a seminal case out there, the Home Depot breach one, which actually had application here in Canada. It's unique because um, it's the first case in Canada where a class action was brought against Home Depot in this case, and the judge said the response was so exemplary, was so well done, that uh, they actually reduced the amount of the award. Really? So what did they do? So they responded perfectly well. So they had this breach, and immediately they brought in a breach code. So this is an external legal counsel that was telling them step-by-step step what to do. And at that point, they basically stopped the incident, contained it. They didn't destroy the evidence. They basically continued their forensic investigation to make sure they could identify how what we call patient zero got in, you know, how was the entry point, the vector of entry. And at the same time, they were quickly able to say, we believe the following types of information were compromised. So personally identifiable information related to credit card information of our patrons. Right. So these are individuals coming in, making transactions within their stores. Very shortly thereafter, they put it in a large newspaper article or advertisement saying, you know, we apologize, here's what's happened, call this number, here's a website. They had a separate call center put in place to be able to respond to queries. They offered free credit monitoring to the people who, who were affected. Um, really were very, very responsive in terms of how they were reacting to the incident. Didn't, didn't preclude class action. It did. People did start a class action against them. But the total amount of the award, if you can believe this, was only $200,000, which wow. is unheard of. No. And so uh, to this day, it's considered to be the gold standard of how to respond to, uh, to a breach. But the key was they, they had the protocols in place 
they knew what to do when the breach happened. Exactly. Right. So the biggest uh, the biggest advantage that Home Depot was able to rely on was the fact that they had a incident response plan. So this is a standalone document. It doesn't have to be very lengthy, but a standalone document which tells them step by step who to call, when to call, what to do next, and so on. Interesting. Um, but the bigger piece was they tested it. So it's great to have a plan, but if you're not testing it in either a mock simulation or any other kind of scenario, you're never going to know how good or bad it is because you can have all the detail in there, but if people don't know what they're supposed to be doing or that they're responsible for something, you're going to have a lot of miscommunication. There's this great study out there uh, that was done by a PR firm which canvassed two groups of individuals within the same organization. On one hand, business people, uh, sort of your, your C-suite executives if you wish, and on the other hand, the operational folks on the technology side of things. And they canvassed them and asked them, what are the top two or three things that would matter to you in your position if a breach was to occur? And what was interesting was even though they were in the same organization, they didn't have the same alignment on objectives. C-suite was much more concerned about financial loss, litigation, reputational harm. IT folks were much more keen on operation, getting the system just back up and running. Right. They weren't thinking about preservation of data. They weren't thinking about litigation. They weren't thinking of any of that stuff. And so when you have the same plan that would apply to the whole team, but non-alignment in terms of objectives, you can have a situation where that exemplary exa uh, response that we're talking about doesn't occur. Yeah, I, can, I would think a lot of organizations, their first response would be, you know, let's go to the backup. You know, let's shut the whole thing down, just back up from yesterday and, and try to carry on that way. It doesn't and, work. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work all the time. I mean, it, it can in some cases. There, there are tons of examples I could share with you where you know backup would take too long to get access to or the backups have been corrupted themselves or you can only get up to 60 percent or whatever percentage lower than 100 uh, of your backup files um, and if you're doing critical work on a day-to-day -day basis think of a bank for example every transaction every minute matters even if you can go to backups from a day ago that doesn't get you further ahead because you're possibly losing money if you're in the insurance industry um, and your renewals are coming up for your insurance, that's going to be a real problem for you if you lose a month's worth of data. So you can go to backups, but it's never the, the only solution typically. And you mentioned insurance here. Maybe we just talk a little bit about risk management when it comes to cybersecurity. We've talked a lot about the, you know, the procedures and the, the policies we should have in place, but can we offset some of this risk? Is there, is there such a thing as cyber insurance? Yeah, there is actually. And I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of cyber insurance for a couple of reasons. So a couple of years ago, you had all of these insurance companies come up with standalone products uh, for, for cyber insurance. And what they offered was essentially three or four key buckets of coverages. Uh, the first one was legal costs, so these are the costs related to dealing with the regulator, um, dealing with the notification piece, or the cost to do the whole legal piece, if you wish. The second one, which was also key, is the forensics. That's probably the biggest cost. So the folks in your IT department may be great, but they may not be security experts, and they don't know how to get malware off your network. You need specialists to come in who can do that without destroying evidence at the same time. So they're called forensic experts, and that's typically where the bulk of the expenditures are when you're getting yourself out of a situation. Uh, the third one is crisis management, which is typically your PR firms to make sure the reputation of the company isn't badly or negatively impacted. And then in some cases, cyber extortion coverage. This is where you're being asked to pay a ransom to get access back to your, your own and data. You get that covered as well. You could get that covered as well. It depends on the profile of the organization yeah. and the limits and coverages. But generally speaking, what the insurer will want to do is make sure that the company has done some basic work on cyber. So they have got protocol, they've got policies, they're running systems which are you know basically up to date. Now you know they've been patched up and so on. And then they'll give you that insurance coverage. 
when a breach occurs, you will then be able to go into a, a panel of experts that they have already vetted for you. Um, so these are folks who are lawyers who do just cybersecurity or forensic firms that just do cyber incidents and so on and be able to tap into their expertise in real time. So it really is a, an integral part of your response. It should be. Yeah, yeah, that is very interesting. So for those who don't have cybersecurity or cyber insurance, look it does, into that. It does offset the cost quite a bit and, and transfer some of the financial cost uh, of the risk to the insurance as opposed to the books of the company. And in a crisis scenario, quite frankly, where cash flow could even be a, a factor, it's a big deal to be able to say, you know what, I've got insurance in place, they'll cover it, or they'll even advance the funds I need to pay these experts to come in and do stuff for me. I know I'm going to be going back to the office looking at our, at our insurance cover <laughs> a little more carefully after this conversation. Um, Inran, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about uh, cybersecurity and, and giving us an update as to the state of where we are in Canada today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.